I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Robert Bashara, a critical psychologist interested in theorizing subjectivity vis-a-vis ideology through radical qualitative research, discourse analysis. In addition to being a scholar and activist, he is a fine artist with a background in film, theater, and music, holding two terminal degrees, a PhD in psychology, consciousness, and society from the University of West Georgia, and an MFA in independent film and digital imaging from Governor State University, Illinois. He currently works as an assistant professor of psychology at Northern New Mexico College. For more information, visit his website, www.robertbashara.com. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-B-E-S-H-A-R-A.com. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Um, your book is amazing. Oh, I mean, thank you very much. I want everybody to start wherever they want, so start wherever you want, but your book is amazing. Oh, thank you so much. So, <laughs> thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me uh, on this uh, amazing podcast. And uh, I was listening yesterday to the podcast with uh, Alfonso, so I really enjoyed that. And, uh, of course, I listened to other ones as well, so it's great to be part of this. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. yeah. It was nice to hear his voice, too, because, you know, uh, we've been friends online, but this was the first time to actually hear him. So, but yeah, the, that book is, uh, is a long story, really, um, for it to come together. And I was thinking about that, uh, all the different pieces that eventually led uh, to that book manifesting itself. Uh, so kind of a long story. And if I were to trace it back to a certain moment, it has to do with kind of the politicization of my own subjectivity uh, right after 9-11. And as, uh, as you may know, I'm originally from Egypt. Uh, I was born and grew up in Cairo. And so, uh, and uh, around the time uh, when, you know, the tragic events of 9-11 took place, 
I was uh, an undergraduate student at uh, the American University in Cairo. And so, of course, uh, all of us around the world got affected by that uh, event. And there was an assumption from the US, of course, that, uh, that maybe people in my part of the world didn't care or supported that. Uh, and so um, everyone was pretty much shocked. And so even though I experienced it from Egypt, it was, it was as probably as shocking as experiencing it in the US because of how it was mediated and how immediate it was uh, with the uh, coverage and everything. So uh, the thing that really uh, affected me right after that, of course, was uh, uh, the war on terror that was that was launched right after in reaction to 9-11. So um, it had, I knew that, I knew that 9-11 was wrong, but I also knew that the war on terror was wrong. So I, I had this uh, sort of political ethical response uh, to that. And it's been, you know, consuming me ever since. Uh, so that's kind of the long story. Uh, and this was happening. Um, so I got really, uh, I saw how unjust that war was, and it made me, uh, it really politicized my subjectivity. Uh, and then, of course, jump forward, there was the Egyptian revolution in 2011, which was a kind of a big deal uh, for me as well. Because, um, you know, I grew up under uh, the dictatorship of, you know, Hosni Mubarak. So that's the only president that I knew all my life. And all of a sudden, this idea that the people could actually come together and put pressure on this government and force them to resign. It's quite a powerful uh, uh, idea in practice, of course. So, um, uh, so the war on terror was was kind of like always there, and then it took a while for me to articulate that theoretically and kind of do the kind of discourse analysis that I do with that. Because I was very much interested in the rhetoric and the effect of that and the propaganda aspect of it, uh, given the repetition of that discourse in the media. And of course, it's still relevant because it's an endless war and, uh, you know, it gets uh, indexed by all kinds of leaders around the world, right? So it's pretty much a very relevant framework to this day, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yes. you wrote, you point out in the book that it, uh, you know, that Bush immediately said, you know, you're either with us or against us. And I was, I yeah. grew up in Florida, and even then, I was in grad school at the time. Um, I guess I started grad school in 2002, and I remember my sister's a photojournalist, and so she was over uh, in Iraq. Um, working and you know she was telling me all of these things that were going on there that we weren't seeing in the news and that yeah. sort of thing and I remember being at like a friend's barbecue and like talking to other people that I thought were like pretty progressive and were my age mm. and were like you know trying to pay more attention and not just buy into this kind of rhetoric um, and I was telling them like the things that she was telling me and I was actually asked to leave like my friends asked me to leave oh, because wow. everyone had gotten like so you know, patriotic, you know, at that right, moment. Right. So I was pretty shocked. Yeah, so that's what I call pseudo-patriotism because uh, it's very simplistic. Uh, you know, we're being positioned by that discourse to take, like you said, one of two positions, two subject positions, right? So either we completely agree with the war on terror, or if we don't, then we're automatically the enemy, right? So obviously the world is way more complex than that. <laughs> 
Um, so how do we account for that complexity? And that's where what I've been trying to like wrestle with uh, to kind of break down that discourse and show that even within the logic of that discourse, there are at least at least four subject positions and two that are implicit in there. Uh, and so that's what I tried to do with the semiotic square from from Gramas. And that really uh, is helpful because it, it gives us a sense of imagining a negative space in that discourse that's afforded by this uh, dominant discourse, which uh, also affords us a place from which to resist this discourse. Uh, and that's using the logic of this discourse, not thinking from outside of it. Um, so that was kind of interesting to kind of just to move from two to four. Uh, it uh, symbolizes the, a move towards complexity. You know, from binarism to kind of four subject position to say that, well, we're talking about complexity. So obviously you can jump from four to infinity. And that was the idea is to kind of open it up. Um, so that's that's kind of the beginning of that work. And then Islamophobia, which is the other piece of this, because uh, 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 the Islamophobia piece, uh, I experienced it on a personal level. And I talk about that in the book. Uh, and it was a moment very similar to the moment that Franz Fanon had uh, on a train when, uh, you know, a child was pointing at him saying, look, a Negro, right? And so I had a similar moment when I was, uh, I did an MFA in independent film and digital imaging before doing my PhD in psychology. And, you know, so uh, I was acting in this film and actually in that short film, I was reading quotes in French by Godard and different people and so it's you know really cool short artsy kind of film and then the reaction from one of uh my fellow students in the class is like wow you look like a terrorist so i'm like why there's no context for this like the film is super artsy i'm speaking in french what made you say that right and what made you perceive me this way and of course you know um I was shocked, but then it, you know, uh, I took some time to think about it to consider that this person, like many other people, are just uh, positioned in a certain way to see me in a certain way, right? And that that's one of the effects of that discourse, is that really it affects how we think and how we see the world, and this is kind of the dangerous part of it. Mm -hmm. And so it made me realize uh, that I'm perceived this way. Uh, this the first time I kind of had that experience and so it got me really interested particularly because you know i'm not actually muslim uh it made me even more interested and of course the uh the assumption in that statement is of course that because i'm from quote unquote the middle east and i look a certain way that i look like a terrorist and that is somehow associated with islam like so there's all these unconscious uh, associations in that loaded uh, statement. So it got me interested. It took me a long time to get to the point, and this is where psychoanalysis was really helpful. Um, because with the discourse analysis, I was able to analyze the discourse itself, but I wasn't able to, just with that, link it with how, uh, what's the connection between Islamophobia, in other words, and uh, war on terror discourse? That was the big question for me that I try to answer in the book. And I haven't seen that theorized anywhere. So everyone assumes that there's a connection, but there's not theorized, mm -hmm. right? And so the theorization basically that, that the fantasy of Islamophobia, uh, which is unconscious, actually sustains the discourse. 
So it's always implicit. And I've done a lot of experiments because I teach. When I ask my students, when you think of the word terrorist, what do you think of? And they're afraid to tell me, but the first thing they think of is Muslim. So there's that unconscious association, right? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the propaganda, from the repetition of signifiers, right? And then chaining those signifiers in a certain way. And that's another way of explaining how propaganda works, right? Yeah, and the, the uh, phenomenon in the U.S. where every time there's a shooting, uh, they'll never call them the person a terrorist if he's like right. a cis Christian man, you know? Absolutely. So it's a very politicized term. And that's why I had to do like uh, in the second chapter, like an archaeology of counterterrorism. And I kind of use that term as you it's hard to kind of talk about it, but counters in parentheses to kind of say that are they really different or is counterterrorism a form of terrorism? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the question of state terrorism, which is, of course, of course, another type of terrorism that's completely uh, never considered. Um, so the question of terrorism, if we think about it, it's political violence, uh, usually against civilians. This is why we find it appalling, right? So it's not a war situation where it's armies fighting each other, right? So it's, um, and, and so that's the definition. Now, who's doing it? It doesn't just have to be non-state actors. It could also be the state doing this. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you expand that term to kind of question counterterrorism and the war on terror as furthering the terrorism as opposed to ending it. So that's the other piece of the puzzle for me is analyzing how the discourse works and also uh, sort of evaluating the effectiveness of the, the strategy and actually how it perpetuates the problem. And of course, this is, uh, this is not an accident because it's very profitable, right, for the military industrial complex and for politicians to um, capitalize on the uh, all the the affects associated with the discourse, right? And that's how you render the the that's how you render citizens docile subjects, right? You just uh, have them always be afraid and they're more easily controlled. But if we actually think rationally and and think about justice and uh, think through this. I'm really interested in reducing, and I know you, you edit a book on violence, so I know you're interested in this question too. I'm really interested in the question of violence and really interested in reducing violence in the world and reducing oppression. And I can easily show that the war on terror as a discourse and as an actual strategy doesn't work and actually exacerbates the problem, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about the Lacanian discourse analysis? Because probably a lot of people don't aren't familiar with that. Yeah, so this is a development from within critical psychology. Uh, and uh, there are different people that contributed to this development. So it's a qualitative research method. Because there are different forms of discourse analysis, and I've used different ones um, out there. And uh, this specific one is a type of research, qualitative research method, uh, and it's mostly associated with Ian Parker, who's a British uh, critical psychologist and, you know, uh, a mentor and a colleague and a friend. And he uh, pretty much is one of the, um, I would say, the leading figures in uh, kind of uh, giving us the guidelines and the steps for doing that type of analysis. So. It draws heavily on um, Jacques Lacan's 
seminar 17. Um, but not only that, but just uh, the kind of theorization of language and discourse in general. Uh, but there's a big um, there's a big focus on the four discourses and um, and how there are different positions within those discourses and how those discourses change and how they relate to one another. Um, so it's very interesting because uh, from the beginning I was interested in rhetoric and language and, and discourse and I've experimented with different approaches from you know uh, Foucault to Fairclough and like I said the missing piece for me was uh, the that psychoanalysis allows is the fantasy piece um, and and that's related to the unconscious again um, most other discourse analysts were not are not going to explore that territory and what's interesting about the Lacanian um, sort of conceptualization of the unconscious is that it's hidden in plain sight so it's not necessarily something that's hidden deep uh, beneath the text it's something that you can see in the text itself so that makes it really empirical and interesting right so when I did uh, I did uh, I conducted 19 interviews with US Muslims because I was interested to learn about uh, their accounts of Islamophobia uh, and how they resist it and I wanted to see the effects of the war on terror discourse and the Islamophobia fantasy on the way they're speaking and what's that doing to their subjectivity and so Lacanian discourse analysis allowed me to do that and to show that they're actually resisting um, the discourse and the fantasy um, on, in two different ways uh, through knowledge and so they're contesting the dominant knowledge or through their own being ontologically uh, by actually putting their body on the line uh, by being in spaces where they know that they could be in danger for just how they look like, right? Uh, and so that was interesting, and of course it challenges the two kind of uh, dominant discourses of uh, the master and the university, and to some extent the capitalist, of course, because I talk a little bit about that uh, in the beginning, and how they do that through the hysteric discourse, which is uh, really if we're, we're interested in knowledge this is the kind of discourse that we should be drawn to and not the university discourse because the university ultimately works for the master right mm -hmm. and uh and the analyst discourse uh, uh is questioning the master hopefully to create new master signifiers so basically to get us out of this whole ideology that we're stuck in and we haven't been able to think outside of and so um Lacanian discourse analysis really gave me the tools to be able to do that kind of work. I don't think I would have been able to do it using a different method. Yeah, it was my first time encountering it. Um, and it's all I kept thinking was like, this study's amazing and like how many different ways this could be applied, you know? Yeah, it's, it's not a very popular method. So I think my attempt was, because, um, you know, there are maybe like two books on this and a number of articles um, so it didn't really take off uh, but I really I was really drawn to it as you can tell and I wanted to show here's a an application of it so one more contribution one more book uh, you know illustrating how it could work and also in a way expanding it with the decolonial perspective yeah let's talk about that 
Yeah, so <laughs> actually the way I came up with that, this is kind of uh, an interesting story. So there's a conference that I like to go to. It's called the Islamophobia Studies Conference, and it's at UC Berkeley. And the person that uh, organizes that conference, he actually had him as the end. Uh, he's Palestinian, and he was on my dissertation committee. Okay, so uh, and I, I got to know him through the conference. So I presented there maybe like four times, and maybe during the second, my second time presenting there, I had this controversial backlash to the presentation, hmm. which was thought-provoking for me. So I was uh, theorizing Islamophobia as a fundamental fantasy using. Zizek's analysis in the plague of fantasies uh, 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 in terms of anti-Semitism under, you know, national socialism. And so seeing how that relates to Islamophobia. And I think it's a very interesting analysis. Uh, but the person uh, that, uh, an audience member that during the Q&A uh, felt really angry that I was citing Zizek. And this, to give you the context, this was around the refugee crisis and the articles that he wrote in these times that were very controversial and he they no longer allowed him to write there after that um, and so basically she wasn't looking at the analysis and more kind of turned off by the signifier Zizek why is that an important signifier for the work that we're doing in resisting Islamophobia right and so uh, I was and of course it was a very emotional response uh, so I, I listened and I didn't have something to say right away, but I wanted to think more about it, why she's reacting this way. Mm -hmm. So my reaction came in the form of a paper that I presented in uh, Manchester in 2017, uh, which is called uh, Decolonizing Psychoanalysis, Psychoanalyzing Islamophobia. And in this paper, what I tried to do is uh, not defend Zizek, uh, actually say that he's not an Islamophobe, because that was her argument. I don't think he is, but I think that he's sloppy when it comes to his theorization of Islamophobia. In other words, there's an under-theorization of Islamophobia in his work, and we can even say maybe in the Lacanian field in general. Mm -hmm. And so I took it upon myself to say that we shouldn't throw away Zizek's work uh, because of some stupid comments he made, or because he's being sloppy, because there's a lot there that we can use, especially in the older Zizek, in my opinion. Um, and and that's what I tried to do. So kind of using Zizek against Zizek, if, if you will, right? Um, and that Which was, you would that appreciate. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so so that was, that was the idea, is to respond to that person in my mind with that paper. And that really... Uh, was a big development in my work that led to the book eventually. And so the idea was, uh, if you look at critical psychology, particularly as developed by Ian Parker, he draws on four theoretical resources. He draws on Marxism, feminism, post-structuralism, and, uh, and psychoanalysis. And so he's a Lacanian psychoanalyst practicing in, in Manchester. Um, and But one, one thing that I thought was missing from that was the post-colonial, decolonial perspective which obviously is meaningful to me as someone from Egypt, from North Africa, uh, you know, so something that I'm sensitive to that I care about, which is how does psychoanalysis, how is psychoanalysis relevant in my part of the world? How, how can we think about it differently from the global south, 
right? So that that's the question, and and the decolonial perspective is a, uh, and we can get into that decolonial postcolonial aspect, but the decolonial perspective was a way of putting psychoanalysis in check. So I'm using psychoanalysis um, to analyze Islamophobia and uh, you know uh, the war on terror, uh, but at the same time psychoanalysis. Uh, needs to be put in check because, you know, it's not it's not a meta language, right? And so the way I do that is I do it through a decolonial perspective. Now, of course, this could be infinite regress and in how do you keep the decolonial perspective in check? And that's I don't have a solution to that problem because. But the idea is to have an outside perspective in dialogue with that to make sure that we're being sensitive and we're not being hegemonic in our interpretation. And so that was kind of my, it took me a while to think about the answer. It had to be in the form of a paper because, uh, and I don't know if she will be satisfied if she reads that, but that was kind of my answer to her question, but it took me a while to, to do it. Yeah, but it's great when that kind of thing happens. Like well, I've given talks before and then had not so pleasant reactions in the moment, but then it really gets me thinking about what yeah. I'm talking about in a different way and makes you like, think about it more and articulate yourself it, yeah. better, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I love the challenge because it makes you exactly like you said, think harder about it, how to articulate it, and makes you think about why you're doing the things you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was important to, to be challenged that way. It was a good challenge because ultimately it led me to, to write the, those things. I would love to be able to, you know, I do conferences and things, and I would love to try to put something together that has you know, more perspectives or if we could have a conference like in North Africa or, you know, include, yeah. include more people. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, you, you're familiar with, probably with Mustafa Safwan, right? Uh, so he's Egyptian and he studied directly with Lacan. Now, of course, I think many in the, in the Lacanian field know about him, but I don't see him being cited as much. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it, for someone from Egypt to see his name being referenced is meaningful to me, right? And that there's that link. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there's psychoanalysis in Egypt and uh, and there's a whole... Uh, I think this is the, the big question for me is because obviously we don't want psychoanalysis to work in the sense of a civilizing mission, right? Here it is. It's been developed in Europe. Let's take it to outside of Europe so that we can civilize these people and they can catch up, right? So there's sometimes this assumption, I think, from some psychoanalysts, and that's where, like, the ideology, uh, I think, of secularism and sometimes Christianity and uh, is working implicitly, unconsciously, that it's somehow, uh, in terms of value, it's better, and that somehow it's completely in harmony with uh, with psychoanalysis, even though Freud himself was a Jewish atheist, and there's an interesting paper I think by Alberto Toscano about the methodological atheism of Freud and how that's different from the ideology of secularism. You know, and that that ideology pretends to be uh, non-religious or irreligious, but li literally is just uh, uh, making Christianity acceptable as the dominant framework, right? And so 
And that's, so the conference actually that I presented at in Manchester tried to address this question, which is, I don't know if you heard about this conference. It was called um, Psychoanalytic Islam, Islamic Psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And it was co-organized by Ian Parker with uh, Sabah Siddiqui. And uh, it's really, really cool conference. Uh, and, and, um, and then they published a book of conference proceedings. So I have that paper that I was telling you about in there. Um, but that conference was trying to address this question ultimately to think about, well, uh, if you're, an, let's say, a non-Muslim psychoanalyst and you have a Muslim analysand, uh, are we going to pretend that there's uh, nothing to think about about that relationship here, that religion has some kind of effect, not necessarily in terms as a religion, but culturally in terms of language and, and all of that. So. This is an interesting question to think about, and we can't pretend that it's not a relevant question. Uh, and so we have to think about psychoanalysis, like you said, from different perspectives, and we need to challenge it, and uh, and ultimately that makes it more interesting, I think. Yeah, and I think you know, what you do beautifully in the book is like, you know, there's a big problem with psychoanalysis having been used to like normalize, like you're saying, or civilize people, yeah. normalize people, help them go to work and have their families and whatever, yeah. uh, especially in the United States um, with like ego psychology and everything. But what you do and, and what you talk about doing and wh what I think Lacanian psychoanalysis does better is like help op open up questions, open up possibilities and different ways of being or different subjective positions rather than like closing yeah. things down into like knowledge which would be like like you said the university kind of more master-oriented yeah. discourse absolutely and and the point that i'm trying to make which is a difficult point to make in this world unfortunately but it's not that complicated of a point is you know there are 1.7 billion muslims in the world just think about the complexity in terms of the differences in terms of subjectivity right in terms of the languages nations cultures yet we think of that group as a monolithic group and i think psychoanalysis sometimes and this is where i find it problematic deals with that group as one thing whereas i think the correct approach is to deal with every single subject the singularity of the subject so yeah sure there's uh, this contingency of you being Muslim and from that part of the world, but then let's let's talk about subjectivity, which is what I try to show is that I interviewed all these U.S. Muslims, but they're all different, and you can find some connections with the discourses, but you know the discourse is not something that's fixed and doesn't change. We the the subject positions are constantly moving around, right, and and flow. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And the opposite way of thinking about something similar is like, because uh, I've just moved out of the U.S. last year. Yeah. So thinking like, I wish I could show Americans like, America is like four and a half percent of the world population. Like that's <laughs> not, it's not a lot. Exactly. You know, there's like billions and billions and billions of people out there. <laughs> Everybody's right. very different from, from the way America thinks everybody <laughs> is or should be. Absolutely, and then Muslims in the US are like 1% of the population, but they're hyper-visible in the media, which puts them in a very difficult position, right? And so, uh, and that's, that's, that's the issue, right? And it really, uh, it really boils down to 
uh, when you see someone, and that's the question of racialization. Like if you perceive a, a person that's different from you, how we automatically racialize the person as this or that, right? And of course that leads to stereotyping and all kinds of things and ultimately racism, right? And so why are we not able to perceive that subject as different and interesting and as contributing to complexity of the world? That And that's the, that's the kind of what I try to do with my work is to show that. But even, I mean, uh, seeing some reactions online to people who haven't even read the book, just reacting to the title hmm. and being turned off completely and, and being angry and hateful and like they're not even willing to read and and to learn, um, which is, again, it confirms my point that we need more work to do, right? There's a lot more work uh, to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is just the beginning. <laughs> um, yeah, what kind of reactions have you gotten overall? Overall, I've received very positive reactions, but I came across a post uh, on Instagram that I didn't know about. I think uh, a friend in Brazil sent it to me and uh, all the comments were, I think, mostly from Europeans and some Americans. Uh, very negative comments, like using vomiting emojis and things like that. Like, you haven't even... Just because it has... And if I had to, like, analyze what it is, it's just because of the subtitle, the Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they see that word, they think... And this is actually part of my criticism of Zizek, because he's... This is where he's wrong. Like, this is the right-wing reaction to that term, which is, they think that this term means uh, curtailing freedom of speech or criticism of that. That's that's the right-wing interpretation. Mm. So when they see Islamophobia, they're like, you're just basically not allowing us to talk about Islam, right? And Zizek, by the way, writes about it this way. This is why I think he's wrong here and why he needs to do more effort and I hope like he does eventually to come around about this point. Uh, but uh, ultimately why I care about this, and, and this term actually, you know, I, I get into this term and it's not a perfect term obviously because it's very actually psychologized term. It has the phobia part of it. But then what term in the world is perfect? There's not, it's, it's nothing to do with the signified. It has to do how the signifier works and and that's what interests me. So for me, the signifier is relevant for Muslims because it speaks to their experience with something which is oppressive to them. And so, yeah, we can debate whether this is a good term or not, but ultimately it has a practical value for uh, people interested in the struggle and in reducing that kind of oppression in the world. So you can call it anti-Muslim racism, you can call it whatever you want. But that happens to be the most popular term, so it's strategic for me to use it, you know. But I think it's uh, there's the reaction to the Islam part of it, which is this all the negative association with that signifier, um, and that and that kind of automatic reaction. And again, I'm writing as a non-Muslim, right? And when I go present at conferences with comrades, you know, because I'm an ally in this struggle. Uh, they get that and they respect that and that's what's beautiful about that world is it's not about identity politics per se it's about a collective struggle against a form of oppression that we're opposed to 
right? It has nothing to do whether I'm Muslim or not and what, what kind of Muslim I am or how religious I am and all of those things. So that's, you know, that's the difference between actually thinking through something and automatically reacting. And a lot of these people who are automatically reacting tend to be liberals who think of themselves as progressives. But ultimately, in those instances, they're very reactionary, right? Literally, mm -hmm. in response. Yeah, well, that means that it was the right word to choose. <laughs> you yeah. know, clearly it's yeah. like a really loaded signifier. Yeah, um, it's a loaded signifier, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which means that, yeah, you have to use it. And that, and I think that was another really beautiful point in your book was like the pluralism and like, you know, how you have to like all the different kinds of struggles need to work together against this like master discourse. Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously, uh, and that's something that's beautiful in terms of like the intersectionality of struggles. And uh, this is a concept from Angela Davis uh, who kind of, in a way, is being critical of Kimberly Crenshaw uh, her, because the traditional use of intersectionality is as an intersectionality of identities, right? So that's uh, that leads us to identity politics, that I'm only caring about this because it's related to my identity, mm -hmm. right? So does that mean that all those struggles in the world that are not related to your personal identity you should completely ignore? And so the intersectionality of struggles is connecting the struggles and working together collectively in solidarity, right, uh, to, to work against those and seeing that, uh, that that doesn't mean we're all the same, we're very different, but that we share a strategy, we share a goal of reducing oppression in the world. And so th that's, and that's what I've seen, and by the way, this is not just com like intellectual point this is what i've actually witnessed at those conferences like mm -hmm. what i really enjoy about this islamophobia conference people coming first of all it's interdisciplinary so coming from different disciplines from different parts of the world and muslims and non-muslims and different kinds of muslims mm -hmm. right and i remember the first time i attended that conference uh, i saw a lot of jewish activists i saw a lot of christian activists I saw a lot of atheist activists, right? So, and that's that's what drew me to this to this field. What's happening on the ground? What the work that we're doing? Uh, connecting activism with scholarly work, right? Um, now, the people that are reacting to the term obviously haven't witnessed that world, haven't engaged with that literature, so they're just reacting to the Islam part of the uh, Islamophobia, which they hate because what else have they been exposed to? except that it's associated with terrorism and, you know, that it's backward and conservative and all those things. So that's all they know, right? Mm -hmm. And you asked they use Islamophobia and Islamophilia in the book. Yeah, so that's a good point, uh, because the fantasy ultimately involves both points. And, uh, and that's, uh, like, the more subtle form of the, racis the racism is the Islamophilia, which is... Uh, which looks on the surface like you love Muslims, but ultimately uh, you're just using them for a specific purpose. So I use the example, uh, I think, from the uh, from the election when Bill Clinton was like, Muslims, we want you, we love you, but you need to work with us against terrorism, <laughs> right? So just 
you love them, but you're just framing them in relation to terrorism. So you're, how is that different from the right-wing discourse? Uh, and that's supposedly the liberal. And so I, uh, conceptually, I associate Islamophobia with conservatism and the reaction, reactionism. And I associate Islamophobia with liberalism, um, and uh, which is basically what Tara Ali calls the extreme center. Right, and if you're a liberal in the US, and this is kind of uh, honestly kind of idiotic, but as you know, uh, in the US, liberals is 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 conflated with like radical leftists, right? So you're you're a liberal, you're crazy. You're socialist, right? And liberal <laughs> in the US is really a centrist everywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. They're not that radical. They're they're just like all about slow reform and. Um, and so what I'm interested in is radicalism, right? Which is really what's missing. Uh, that's and and this is very strategic by conflating liberalism with radicalism. You actually don't allow for that negative space to exist. Right. The, what is the radical response to the Islamophobia, Islamophilia fantasy? Which is you know the Islamophilia is saying, oh I love Islam, I love Sufism, I love Rumi, right? It's like that kind of response, which you might expect from liberals in the U.S., right? Um, so, and of course, if you say that to Muslims, they're going to look at you like and raise their eyebrows, right? Uh, <laughs> and so, what is the radical response? It's really to, to own your ignorance. I think that's the radical response, which is the Socratic one, right? I know that I don't know. And, and that's okay. There's no way I can know everything. I cannot be an expert on Islam, I'm not an Islamic studies scholar, but the problem with Islamophobia, Islamophilia is people act as if they're Islamic studies scholars. Oh, I know what this is about, I know what this religion is about, right? It's all about hate and it's all about that. Wow, so so you're ignorant, but you don't even know that you're ignorant. So I think the radical response is to own our ignorance about anything, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one example, but this could be in relation to any group of people uh, that we don't know much about, right? Even with, yeah. I actually try to do that a lot on this podcast because, like, a lot of times when I read somebody's work, there's something like I said, I've never heard of Lacanian discourse analysis before, and right. I think it's great. And I just like try to say, like, I don't know what this is. Can you explain it to me or talk more about it? Because, you know, I can't know everything, and people listening don't know everything, and that's okay. <laughs> that's why yeah. we're listening yeah. and learning and talking. <laughs> all of us and and it's humility ultimately right and and so Lacan actually talked about it uh, which is learned ignorance he talks about that uh, which goes all the way back to uh, so Socrates which is a form of knowledge the knowledge that you don't know that's why it's called learned ignorance whereas ignorance without the learned part is the kind of ignorance that leads to hatefulness mm -hmm. right and so it sounds weird, but I think that that's the actual radical response to the fantasy. Um, um, but not many people are in that position. But if more people are in that position, that we're in a stronger position to completely reject the fantasy and probably change things. And that can happen over time. Mm -hmm. right? I really wish the U.S. would have a, like a multi-party system. Because be, yeah. having the like Democrats versus Republicans is just like... It's just back and forth and back and forth, and it seems to just get yeah. worse and worse. And uh, I don't know. I mean, at least as my whole adulthood, it's just like 
the next one comes in and just has to like work at undoing all the problems from the last person and <laughs> then yeah, the next one yeah. comes in and just destroys everything more true <laughs> yeah it's kind of a simplistic uh, binaristic system right and that's part of the issue is like how the complexity of the world is reduced uh, the complexity of the united states you know a country of more than 300 million people how can it be reduced to two parties? To do teams. Uh, it's like teams. Yeah. Like yeah. you're on my team or you're not on my team. You know? <laughs> yeah. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. Exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, yeah, I would, I, I would hope to at least see three parties because, uh, and obviously multi-party is the best, but ultimately I do believe that there are three political positions, you know, which is, you know, this goes back to the French Revolution and the, it had to do with literally where everyone was sitting and that's why we got the left right center term that the leftists were sitting on the left and they were the radicals that wanted um, uh, you know systemic change right uh, revolutionary change and then you have the liberals in the middle who are centrist and they want reformation they want to reform the system so slowly change it through the electoral system uh, and what have you and then you have the conservatives who like the way that things were before and they want to keep it that way so they have this fantasy about returning to the past and that's why they're reactionary mm -hmm. in the US we only really have liberals and conservatives and Democrats are liberals conservatives are what the Republican Party we really don't have that third space and so we talk about third parties and they do exist the Green Party but they're extremely weak and they have no significance on a federal level mm -hmm. perhaps they could do something and this is what we're seeing changing actually in the u.s on a local level these more radical parties like democratic socialists of america um are actually can do something on a local level they could win seats as, as city council members or even mayors but when it comes to the federal level, the presidential elections, it's really, it does boil down to two positions. Mm -hmm. So the complexity is reduced like that, yeah. So what are you working on now? Yeah, so I kind of wanted to mention a, a couple of things. So I, um, you were asking me about the Critical Psychology Certificate Program, I think, on Twitter. Right. So uh, that's something I did with the Global Center for Advanced Studies, or GCAS. Um, uh, which is this online um, university, college, that um, has um, satellites all over the world, really. So they're currently based in Dublin, but they have satellites in the U.S., in Latin America, uh, all over, really. Um, so uh, they're, and they're trying to use uh, digital currencies and you know trying to really challenge the hegemonic neoliberal system of education that we see in the US and other parts of the world and so they I was invited to uh, by Creston Davis you know the chancellor and founder to do this program uh, mainly because uh, my friend and colleague Todd Sloan passed away and he was one of mm -hmm. the leading figures in critical psychology and he was um, he was going to do it and unfortunately he passed away and so pretty much I, I took over after him and what's interesting is that last year he was sharing with me what he was working on and he wanted feedback on the program and I didn't think that I was gonna actually do it right after 
So it happened. Uh, so I did that over the summer of July. We did four sessions, uh, kind of looking at uh, what is critical psychology, what are the theoretical resources, and then what are the practical applications of that. So that that certificate program is online, and uh, you can go to the website. Um, the other thing I did was I organized this international conference, which was really exciting, um, and that was in September, uh, the International Critical Psychology Praxis Congress. and. Um, we had scholars coming from all over the world, all over the United States, to Hispaniola and New Mexico. So I'm based in northern New Mexico. I teach at Northern New Mexico College, uh, which is uh, on historically Tewa land, and we're surrounded as a campus by eight uh, northern Pueblo tribes, right? So these are indigenous tribes. And so our students come from these tribes as well as other communities. And so our, uh, the institution that I work for uh, serves underserved students uh, from northern New Mexico who are mostly Hispanic and Native American. So this is quite an amazing experience to work with uh, my students, right? And so they actually helped me organize the conference I was telling you about. And they had a great time. They did a great job. And even though they're undergraduate students, they were able to engage with these scholars uh, on their level. And so the scholars were very impressed with them. Uh, and that was very empowering and meaningful uh, as an experience. Yeah. I so love we that. Live streamed, yeah, we live streamed the event and the videos from the conference are all on the Critical Psychology website, which is criticalpsychology.org. So anyone interested can, can check that out. Uh, all of them are there. And um, we had amazing keynote speakers, including Tommy Curry. Uh, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, uh, and he just uh, he published a book called The Man Not, which came out last year, 2018, and uh, received the American Book Award. So for for me to get him, and he's a distinguished professor or chair uh, at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and so to get him from Edinburgh to Hispaniola to give a keynote speech and like hang out with him over two days, and uh, it was great for the students, but also I really enjoyed that too. Um, and, you know, we made it happen, and it was, a, it was a really, really enjoyable experience. That's great. And we'll put links to everything, like, in the text that accompanies okay. the episode so that people can see all these so, things. Yeah, thank you. And I'm working on a book of conference proceedings for that. Uh, so that's one project. Um, I just released a critical introduction to psychology. Uh, came out in October. It's an editive volume. Uh, where I ask critical psychologists to basically respond. Have you ever taken, you probably took intro to psychology when you were an undergraduate, uh, undergraduate student. How, what did you think of that course? Um, I mean, I remember it being very general introductions to like all the different kinds of psychology, including yeah. like Freud, but also like behavioral and everything. But actually my undergraduate psychology degree made me think that graduate school was gonna be more eclectic yeah. Um, I thought that they were going to kind of teach us the range and like all the different modalities. Like this is psychoanalytic, this is <laughs> behavioral, this is cognitive behavioral. It wasn't like that, right? And it was not like that at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so the, having taught that course for several years, um, the students, my observation is that the students find it very frustrating because it's too eclectic, makes psychology seem like a discipline that doesn't make sense. It's all over the place, which I guess it is, right? 
Uh, I mean, you can see that clearly with the APA divisions, right? Um, and so they're like always wondering in that course, like, what is psychology if it's all those things, like one makes it one thing, right? Um, so they're frustrated on that level. I'm frustrated with them on that level because not everything is equally interesting to me as I'm teaching. Mm. But the other big piece was, uh, so I taught at University of West Georgia before Northern New Mexico College. And uh, University of West Georgia is, uh, the majority of the students are African-American. So it's a different context, but also uh, dealing with minority students, right? And so I'm looking at my African-American students, I'm looking at my Hispanic students, my Native American students, and I'm teaching intro to psychology and they're like, where, where, where do we see ourselves in this? Mm -hmm. Where are we? What is this? What are we learning this? How is this relevant to us? Where are the African-American psychologists? Where are the Hispanic psychologists? Where are the Native American psychologists? They're not there, mm -mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, most of the psychologists tend to be male that we learn about in intro to psychology. They tend to be white right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they tend to be very conservative in their mainstream approach, right? And so I've been frustrated with this problem for a while, and I decided to contribute to a solution, which was to invite critical psychologists to respond to every single chapter that you find in a typical introductory psychology textbook, right? That's great. Uh, so learning. What is, how do you want to respond to learning from a critical psychological perspective or neuroscience Right, and so we did that, and it's really a nice, nice uh, volume, uh, and I can send you a copy actually if you're interested. I would so love to read it. Yeah, it's it's a fun one, and also I gave them this challenge of thinking of psychology uh, globally, right? Uh, and so trying to include, and because this has to do with citational uh, politics, this is Sarah Ahmed talks about this, uh, our citational practices. Who are we citing? Because it's not just about knowledge. It's a, there's a political aspect to it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what are the voices that we keep, uh, you know, platforming or highlighting? And so we we I think it's um, an ethical political imperative to really think about who are we citing and can we go outside our comfort zone to cite people from the global south and cite psychologists from the global north who have been excluded like Kenneth and Mammy Clark, like, uh, you know, when you look at uh, their doll test studies, extremely important, and they were, uh, they were cited in uh, uh, Brown v. Board of Education, right, to end, as a, one of the reasons for ending segregation is that segregation actually has this negative effect on students, so it actually is not conducive for a learning environment. And those were that they were amazing couple psychologists, and that's never included in interest psychology textbooks. Mm -mm. So I actually make a point when I teach that I make students read their work directly, primary sources, right? So things like that, you know, that's the that's the challenge, and I think we have that responsibility, especially if we're more critical as psychologists to do that. Uh, other than this, I have to. Uh, Maybe three more projects I can tell you about. Uh, <laughs> um, so I translated um, a book called Fundamentalism and Secularization from Arabic to English. It's an uh, Egyptian, uh, it's written by an Egyptian philosopher called Murad Wahba, and it was published in 1995. And Murad Wahba 
uh, is still with us. He's in his 90s. And I got his approval, and he gave me feedback on the translation. I finished everything. Currently, I'm in. Uh, I'm uh, corresponding with a, a big publisher to, to get it out there. Um, so this is cool because here's a, a philosopher from the global south, who I consider a world philosopher because he's engaging with literature, uh, from what we would consider European knowledge, right? European philosophy, but he's also coming from a different perspective, and so expanding complexifying so my position is always not to say oh we shouldn't cite europeans and just only cite non-europeans that's not my point my point is to cite europeans and everyone else mm -hmm. we can think in a global way right um and so i think it's important for people in the world especially that don't read in arabic to read his work and to see uh, a philosopher, philosopher from North Africa writing about those issues way ahead, you know, like this is 1995, he's talking about fundamental, fundamentalism and secularization way before 9-11 and all of that. So it's related to that whole project and he has a lot of interesting analyses about uh, the kind of organic relationship between fundamentalism and capitalism mm -hmm. and how actually they sustain each other. Mm. There's a whole interesting history there. Uh, we can get into that, but that's a whole complex uh, kind of territory. Um, so that's that's one one big project that hopefully will come out uh, fairly soon. I have a sequel to Decolonial Psychoanalysis that I'm working on. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's called Freud and Said. Nice. So, yeah, it's kind of a dialogue between Sigmund Freud and Edward Said. And the idea came from me as I was doing research for decolonial psychoanalysis, uh, Edward Said was clearly influenced by psychoanalysis, was clearly interested in Sigmund Freud, uh, but no one has really explicitly written any book about that connection. So I was like, it doesn't exist, I might as well write about that. So I'm looking specifically uh, at three of Said's texts where he makes explicit references to psychoanalysis and I'm seeing how those concepts uh, have influenced him and his ideas uh, and really uh, showing that and of course uh, trying to address also the question that I end this book with decolonial psychoanalysis which is the question of liberation praxis I end the book with that question as an open question mm -hmm. because like once you have a new master and then what right um, so I'm trying to think more about that question uh, in, in that kind of sequel to, to think more about that, where I ended decolonial uh, psychoanalysis. So that's what I'm working on. It's kind of a daunting project, to be honest with you, because it's huge, and I'm really overwhelmed. But it's necessary, and um, hopefully, I should be able to finish it by uh, summer of 2020. So. What yeah. I've learned with books is that I just have to like let myself take my time and like really think <laughs> through and digest it because as yeah. soon as it's done, then you start working on, or I start, you, you do clearly yeah. too, just start working on something else. So we might yeah. as well take our time a little bit, you know, because <laughs> it's not like that project ends and then we have a break, you know. <laughs> yeah. I need to take a break too because uh, for the conference was so, so successful that they asked me to do it on a yearly basis and I was like, no. I need a year off, and it could be every two years, but I have all these other things that I have to, I want to do, uh, and I can only do them if I'm able to focus on one thing at a time. Um, now, lastly, because I know you're into the esoteric, and we have that connection, we didn't get a chance to really talk about it, 
but uh, you and Carl obviously uh, that's something that I find fascinating about your work uh, the esoteric dimension uh, and that's something that I was way more into before everything else that I did um, so um, which has to do with the question of how I got into psychoanalysis actually uh, if you're interested to know yes please uh, but uh, <laughs> it has to do with with surrealism and as you know the surrealism has these deep connections with esotericism right mm -hmm. um, so when I was an undergrad student at AUC that's when I got into Freud and Jung uh, I was reading that both of them at the time and I was really into surrealism in terms of paintings as well as films and I still am to this day more films than paintings though um, so I was into Salvador Dali Rene Magritte um, in terms of surrealism, I was interested in David Lynch, uh, Luis Buñuel, um, you know, all these different um, surrealists. And what really got me interested in psychoanalysis, because I was an artist before I was a psychologist, and I'm still an artist, but like that's the chronological order. And you are also an artist, so we have these connections too. Um, but what really got me into it was surrealism showed me is a way of um, it was a way of capturing or showing the unconscious in, in an aesthetic way and I really loved that and so I was interested in that question of representations of the unconscious or uh, different forms of the unconscious and obviously surrealism explicitly tried to do that and of course Lacan great links right he was actually friends with Salvador Dali, I believe he was his physician as well. Mm -hmm. So we have these historical links. And that's something, by the way, I know you probably explore this, but not many Lacanians explore this connection, which is, I think, crucial for Lacan's thought. And in some way, you can even look at his writing style and his aesthetic as surreal. Mm -hmm. Like he was tripping people with his seminars and his writings. And that's because of that influence early on, and he was writing in the Minotaur and and like hanging out with the surrealists and and so like that's a fascinating time, obviously, and a lot of interesting um, stuff came out of that. And Lacan, I think, is one of them, but not many people think about that explicitly, or but I think you do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and he's so yeah. creative. He's such a creative thinker. You know, yeah. and like that's why I get so frustrated. I mean, I love Lacanians, but like I get frustrated when people get too wrapped up in like disputing, like like turning him into a dogma. Like, no, he means this, yeah. and no, he means this. It's like, Absolutely. but he, he's so like evolving all the time, and I don't, I don't think that he wants us to do that. We're just supposed to like let these ideas yeah. be generative and in our own and create our own ideas, you know, not just argue they, about what he meant. They, and they get too serious, right? And there's like a playfulness in Lacan, mm. right? There's the aesthetic dimension. There's there's like a humorous aspect to it. He's always playing with words. He's playing, exactly. right? And so, why is he doing that? That's it has a it has an aesthetic effect. It's not, it's it's formal. It's purely formal, and and that's what we're interested in. We're interested in form, right? We going back to the unconscious being hidden in plain sight. Uh, we're interesting forms of the unconscious. So, yeah, when they get too serious and they turn him into dogma, then, yeah, it completely destroys the whole project. So I think we need to always remember the surreal foundations of psycho Lacanian psychoanalysis, right? And, of course, Freud himself was also interested in the aesthetic. Maybe not surrealism, but we know about his collection of, like, uh, relics and sculptures and... 
Like he was definitely interested in that, especially ancient Egypt, which I was gonna makes, say that. Yeah, I find that fascinating. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. he had, and I can see some stuff behind you too. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was fortunate, and some of these things are from Colombia. And then uh, I was in Morocco over the summer, and last nice. year I actually got to go to Egypt. Um, oh, cool. Last September, what an amazing place! Uh, Where did you go? I went, yeah, and then I went into Upper Egypt as well. Um, But I also went, you mentioned in your book that you're, uh, yep, and uh, you mentioned the Coptic, and I got to stay in this Coptic monastery outside Cairo, uh, Anaphora. Yeah. I loved Anaphora. What a special Uh place. Yeah. Did you get a chance to uh, see Siwa? No. What about, uh, did you go to Sinai? No. Yeah, so my favorite place in Egypt is Sinai, okay. especially in Weba, which is on you know uh, on the Red Sea, uh, and this is like my favorite place in the world to be on the beach in a very simple beach, so like in a hut, because that's how it is uh, there. You're living in a hut on the beach between the Red Sea, between a range of mountains, and wow. just this, going back to the simple life enjoying just being you know uh not using social media phones like when i go there i don't do that stuff you know i haven't been back in actually a number of years unfortunately but uh like i've had some interesting uh, esoteric experiences there too uh given like you know supposedly moses received the commandments in that part of the world like it has it's a it's charged as a place and you feel it. You can feel you know? it, yeah. You feel it. So one one of the weird experiences I had, I went to this place called the Color Canyon in Sinai. And uh, when I was inside the canyon, you don't hear anything. You know, no cars, no planes, no people. It really is the sound of silence, right? Like, uh, and I was able to hear the mountains. And that was a really weird experience, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an esoteric experience. Like those mountains are really, you know, they're they've been there for such a long time, and they're charged with, you know, so much like energy, and and that uh, you can hear that somehow. Mm-hmm. And it's like a trippy, trippy experience being in in there. Uh, so that links to maybe the final thing I want to tell you about, which is Alchemy in Hyde Park, my second feature film, which is an esoteric drama. That's how I describe it. Ah. Yeah, so uh, and so before I did my PhD in psychology in Georgia, I was in uh, Chicago doing an MFA in film. So that's and that's uh, that was my MFA uh, thesis project, uh, which I shot in. Have you been to Chicago? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. OK, so I was living in Hyde Park and <clears throat> and I decided I, I was, you know, I love the architecture in Chicago like everyone should. Right. And I wanted to make a film, a feature film, completely uh, shot and set in Hyde Park, right? And uh, I wanted to use Hyde Park almost as a character in the film, right? So it's called Alchemy in Hyde Park because there are four characters in the film, and Hyde Park is the fifth character. And it's about the alchemy between these different characters and the idea was not to have one protagonist because that's typically any structure narrative structure has one protagonist that you follow but to have four and you can 
as an esoteric person, you can imagine the implications of having four and all of that. Um, but it was very much uh, drawing on the tarot um, uh, and uh, also uh, astrology to some extent. And uh, so that's a whole other conversation. That's why I'm kind of get, telling you about this in the end, so it's unfair. But Well, we'll just have you on again. <laughs> How did you see this film? Uh, so it's on Vimeo, actually. Um, uh, so you can find it there. And there's a website for the alchemyinhydepark.com. Okay. So that's we will link to all these things, and I'm going to watch yeah. them. Yeah, I think you're you're gonna. And I saw you and Carl did some stuff with like Kenneth Anger and all that, and I, and I like the fact that Lucifer Rising is shot in Egypt too. Mm -hmm. Like that to me, because of that connection too, is really cool. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, yeah. So should we start there? Is there anything else? Are you going to be at the APA Division Thirty Nine that Lara is yes. doing? Oh, yes, good. So we'll meet. Yes, we will. Is Carl going to be there too? Yeah, he'll come to New York with me. I don't know that he'll come to the conference. He's okay. actually doing a book um, of interviews with Genesis Peorage. And okay. I think they're going to have a release party because it was going to be released on Jen's 70th birthday, which is February 22nd. And Jen lives in New York. So I think they're going to plan like a release party the same weekend as the conference oh, since we're going to okay. be in New York anyway. But that'll yeah. be in the evening. So maybe we can all go to that after. <laughs> yeah let's do that and I'm gonna be with my partner too so uh, it will be cool okay. I also told Alfonso if he could come it would be great for, uh, for that would be so fun yeah. yeah so yeah that should be a, should be a cool conference and Mireille Fanon is gonna be there I'm so, so excited how, how that's cool. why I had yeah. to go we had originally like other plans that time yeah. of the month and I was like could we please move them because I really <laughs> want to go to this <laughs> well, I'm glad you're going so we get to all Are you presenting your book? Aura. I'm presenting on something uh, related to Freud and Said book. Okay. So cool. I'll talk about Egypt really, and um, because you know, and what's going on right now politically, and you know, and because um, it's it's you know the counter revolution pretty much won in Egypt, right? So um, thinking about that and thinking about. Because that's not a sustainable position, actually. Mm. So thinking about what could come out of that. Because the revolution happened. We can't pretend that it didn't happen. Uh, it didn't win, but it happened. Mm -hmm. And so that means that long term, something will change that's systemic because there's that demand of the revolution, which was real, you know. Mm -hmm. So... And my partner, uh, Connie, she's presenting on uh, Chile, because Chile mm -hmm. now, uh, you know, she's Chilean, and uh, she's looking at repression in Chile in both senses of the term, political repression, but also unconscious repression. Mm. And uh, the people in Chile are revolting against uh, the neoliberal regime of Piñera. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing all these mass movements happening all over the world, you know, most of us are unhappy with how the world is going, right? And with, with, especially with the rise of fascism all over the world, mm -hmm. right? We're it's time for a change. It's time for a major, <laughs> radical change. Overhaul the systems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. 
You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Robert Bashara. For more, please visit his website, robertbashara.com. That's www.robertbeshara.com. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. That's D-R-V-A-N-E-S-S-A-S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R.net or renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a-2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.